0: So we're coming up on kind of a special day, and we'll talk more about that. But the first question I might have for any kids here or on Zoom is, how long do you think Christmas usually lasts? Probably at least until um, February. Wow, probably at least until February you know what? You win the prize. (laughs) You take care of about half of my message today. Good for you. Good for you. A lot of people think Christmas only lasts one day. And actually, of course, in the church, we have 12 days of Christmas, just like the song. And then we have from the nativity, we go to the epiphany. And that's uh, the people who are Russian or Greek or Eastern Orthodox usually will celebrate even more on epiphany than they do on the nativity but you're absolutely right the time of the nativity lasts 40 days we don't think about that much but it's true so what happened 40 days after the nativity well i'm glad you asked because they had to take jesus to the temple to dedicate him as a firstborn son that was a a process and uh, a duty that they had in the Judaism of that time. So Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple to dedicate him and also for Mary's purification after childbirth, because that was another ritual that was required. And I really like that story because there are two old people in this story, just like Pastor Jim, and they know something that everybody else doesn't know. There's the old man named Simeon who recognizes Jesus For who Jesus is and there's the really old woman Anna who was a prophet who also recognizes Jesus even as a little baby 40 days old recognizes Jesus for who Jesus is and tells everybody about him she's really one of our first evangelists although we don't think about that much so that happened 40 days after the birth so it's the end of the nativity cycle you were right and the duty cycle really ends just about on February, and in fact, it's February 2nd, because that's 40 days from the nativity. And back in the old days, people would think about these scriptures, and the old man Simeon in the temple said, a light to lighten the Gentiles. That's most of us. A light to lighten the Gentiles. So what do you suppose way back when they had to use for light in the church? uh i don't know i just happened to have here in my hand a candle. they would have, they would have candles that's right absolutely yeah. and so it became a tradition to bless candles on this date and it was called candlemas and it was kind of the end of the nativity and i guess there was this thought in germany hundreds of years ago that if the priest was blessing longer candles, it would be a longer winter. And if the priest was blessing shorter <laughs> candles, it would be a shorter winter. I think it's because the priest maybe ran out of beeswax or something, but that was the tradition that they had. And so they also had another tradition saying that if they saw a hedgehog then on Candlemas, that would mean that Christmas was gonna okay. come over and spring was going to be early, after the nativity. And so there were Germans who came from Germany to Pennsylvania, and they remembered that story, and they remembered that tradition. But they didn't have hedgehogs. They had groundhogs. And so now, in Pennsylvania, we have Huxitani Phil, the groundhog who comes out, and if he sees his shadow, he's scared and hides, and the winter is longer. Okay. Yep, Groundhog Day, Puxatawney Phil in Pennsylvania. But the real background of it is because for hundreds of years, we blessed candles on Candlemas. And probably when you're in junior high or high school, you're going to read books from English authors who will talk about Candlemas. Candlemas in the early, early spring, late, late winter, and then Michaelmas, St. Michael's Day in the fall. But on Tuesday, when you're hearing all about the groundhog and Punxsutawney Phil, I'd like to ask for you to think about two old people in the temple who recognized Jesus or who he was. Okay? Okay. All right. all right. Let's have a word of prayer together. Dear Jesus, you are the light of the world, and you have called us to be the light to others. Help us to shine brightly so that everyone can see what we're doing and give God the glory. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Well, it seems like a long time since I read the gospel lesson, but let's turn our thoughts to those gospels. You may remember how Thomas Gomes writes that the gospel lessons for last Sunday and this Sunday are like a play in two acts. The first act, act one, goes really, really well. Act two, not so much. Last Sunday's gospel lesson left us in a crowded synagogue. Jesus in the midst of them, having read beautifully, I'm sure, from the prophet Isaiah, and all eyes are intently on him in the synagogue. This is all happening in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, where he grew up. Nazareth now has about 77,000 people, or probably even more than that, and it's sometimes known as the Arab capital of the state of Israel. Nazareth then was a real polis. It was a place. There might've been more than 20,000 people living in Nazareth already. There were three significant roads that ran by Nazareth. One was a road carrying pilgrims from the south to Jerusalem. And then there was the great way of the sea, which led from Egypt to Damascus past Nazareth. And then there were the great road to the east that brought caravans from Arabia and also the Roman legions that were marching out to the east, to the eastern frontiers of the empire. So this was a sophisticated place, and these were probably sophisticated folks, and they probably knew how sophisticated they were. They are speaking well of Jesus until there is a sudden shift. Of course, Jesus is always turning things upside down in the Gospel of Luke, isn't he? But this shift is so sudden, and maybe as you hear the Gospel read, you pick up on it too. This shift is so sudden that some commentators think Luke was editing a couple different stories or traditions together. And this is a rare occasion when Luke's editing leaves a little something to be desired because suddenly Jesus says to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb doctor cure yourself well we of course know that proverb better from the king james version which was physician heal thyself and we still hear that every so often that was the king james version still something of a proverb and then jesus says i suppose you're going to want me to do here the things that i did in Capernaum, and of course we have to ask what things what did he do in Capernaum? luke tells us that Jesus returned from the temptation in the wilderness, full of the Holy Spirit, to the region of Galilee. But Luke really doesn't tell us what Jesus might have already done there. So we are left to speculate and fill in the blanks. But the interaction between Jesus and the congregation is becoming already a little bit pointed. So, Jesus adds, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. And we probably know that expression better from the way it's put in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus essentially says, a prophet is without honor in the prophet's hometown. And then, as if to drive home the point, Jesus makes two really, really inflammatory observations. Jesus reminds these faithful Jewish folks, remember, they're all in the synagogue on the Sabbath, that during the time of Elijah, when there was a severe famine all over the land, that greatest of prophets was not sent to any of the hungry in Israel, but rather that widow in Zarephath in Sidon. The hometown for that woman is sometimes also translated as Sarepta. And we have to remember, it was on the coast of the Mediterranean in an area that had historically been inhabited by Philistines who were no friends to the early Israelites. This woman to whom Elijah went was not a Jew. Then, as though to drive home the point even more, Jesus observes that there were many lepers in the time of Elisha, but none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. And this guy was a general in an army that had marauded and raided Israel for decades he was an enemy this general was not a jew so that was the clincher when privilege is threatened even when it's not a zero-sum game the reaction is often rage think about marriage equality when privilege was threatened even when it's not a zero-sum game The reaction is often rage, and the congregation who had previously marveled now became furious. Their special standing as descendants of Abraham, as God's chosen, all of that has been challenged, and their reaction is rage, so much so that, Luke says, they seek to kill him. These folks take their sermons real seriously, don't they, at least when they're offended I've often wondered if they were always so moved and so responsive when they were instructed rather than offended. But I suppose that could be said for every congregation, for every preacher. It's easier to take offense, and these folks really do. Luke is telling this story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as emblematic, as a broad picture for Jesus Christ whole ministry, because there will be acceptance and there will be rejection. And the prowl of the hill from which the crowd seeks to throw Jesus, that hill foreshadows the place of the skull. For now, they throw Jesus out of town. Think about it. They throw Jesus out of town. I had this thought going through my mind as I was thinking about this text in this sermon this week, that if there were people in that congregation, probably mostly men, I don't know, in that congregation, when they became older, if they had grandkids coming to them and saying, Grandpa, what's one of the really important good things that you did? And Grandpa would say, well, I was part of the crowd that threw Jesus out of town. have to be careful. Later on in his second book, Acts, Luke will tell us how Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue in Antioch and resolved to take the message to the Gentiles. Jesus doesn't go that far, but he turns from his hometown folks in Nazareth to those folks he doesn't know among the Jews in Galilee. So, What might we take away from this really rather distressing story about mob psychology? Well, we must remember, beginning even with Mary's Magnificat, Luke wants to show us how Jesus turns everything upside down, how the lowly are lifted up. Katie Hines Shaw is a Lutheran pastor in Illinois, and she wrote this in a recent edition of The Christian Century. It was a beautiful comment. She says, jesus came to be with us whoever we are this is so important because at one time or another we will find ourselves on the wrong side of the dividing line our gender our age our race or color who we love how much money we make or don't make our physical abilities or our challenges our nationality where we went to school how we pray these things will make us unworthy in the eyes of some. And I speculate that most of us have, on at least a few occasions, experienced at times those feelings of deep unworthiness, not because of anything we have done, but because of who we are, our very identities. Then, and just as vital, maybe more so, I would speculate that there have been those times when we ourselves are the one projecting unworthiness from our own eyes. It can happen so quickly, almost reflexively, that we judge and we find ourselves wanting to exclude and avoid those who, for whatever reason, perturb our comfort zone and our special status. One of my seminary professors reminded our class of this familiar proverb, He said, when you draw a line between yourself and the other person, don't be surprised to look up and see Jesus standing on the other side. So we reach out with the help of the Holy Spirit. We reach out across lines that humanity has drawn because we have all been created in the image of God we reach out across lines that humanity has drawn, even when we know it's not easy or comfortable because we know that God has seen no such divisions. And from a human standpoint, if only that, we reach across lines that humanity has drawn because we have so very, very, very much to learn from one another. If we have the eyes to see and the hearts to stale them. Thomas Gomes speaks of the visit of Dr. Martin Luther King Sr. to chapel services at Harvard long after his son was assassinated. And we remember, of course, that Daddy King, as they called him, had endured the death of his famous son. But his other son, who was also a clergy person and much younger, had vowed to find his brother's assassins. That younger son was also found dead himself at the bottom of a swimming pool at his house, even though he was a strong and avid swimmer. What happened there? Further, the elder king's wife, Alberta Williams King, whose father, Pastor Williams, had been the pastor at Ebenezer, Alberta Williams King herself was shot while playing services on the organ at Ebenezer and killed in 1974, you know, I was a sentient adult in 1974, and I have no recollection of that awful incident. I, I never do this, so I'm gonna do it once. How many of you remember that? I was stunned, I was stunned. While she was playing the Lord's Prayer, she was shot and killed. And so, think of the loss. Think of the loss. When Martin Luther King Sr. stood up in chapel after prolonged, prolonged ovation, Martin Luther King Sr. opened his sermon by saying, I have no hate in my heart, for I love God, and God loves everyone. I have no hate in my heart, for I love God, and God loves everyone. Do you think we have something to learn from each other? Daryl Jones wrote this in a recent article of the Lutheran. He said, by seeking to understand our neighbors, we can build the world that God intends, a world ruled by peace, built on equity and justice, and infused with the sweet fragrance of love. Love. Remember, as 1 Corinthians 13 Edwin Markham was a Unitarian poet who wrote, he drew a circle to shut me out, heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. Quoting that pastor from Illinois, she observes once again, someone once said that when the world draws a line, Jesus steps to the other side. His love is just that big. Love. Remember? Remember how all of this got started? Remember that Jesus came home already famous in Galilee and everyone loved him and he announced his mission as prophesied by Isaiah to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to release captives. But the message of Jesus was too inclusive for those sophisticated, exclusive folks in Nazareth. So even though it seems like it's months ago, it's been barely more than a month since Christmas. We are still in epiphany, the season when we are called especially to shine. Let your light so shine before others that they may give glory to God for our good works. Remember that from the baptism service? Howard Thurman was a noted author and psychologist and pastor and writer and activist who had his church right here in San Francisco. Howard Thurman wrote a prayer and a poem called The Work of Christmas. See if some of it doesn't sound familiar. Here's what Howard Thurman wrote. He said, when the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and the princes are home, when shepherds are back with their flock, The work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoners, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among others, to make music in the heart. May we remember. The work of Jesus even when we can't hear the song of the angels may we remember the work of Jesus even when kings and princes have gone back home by another way may we behold his glory and reflect it in our lives and follow in his steps this is my prayer for us in and through the holy spirit